There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at Grant's microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. want to welcome all you folks that are coming over from Duty Ron's show. Appreciate you guys. I also appreciate Duty Ron for sending me your audience. It's uh, very noble of you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. You know, folks, the Brian Koberger case, It's we know that they gave the defense nearly six months to prepare for the hearings, actually, the probable cause hearings that will start on June 26th. And I just did a show the other night with uh, Professor Mike Geary and talking about what is the defense doing with all of this time? How are they using their time to further the ends of their job, which is to create doubt beyond a reasonable doubt, that old acronym BARD, B-A-R-D, Beyond a reasonable doubt, that's what the defense is looking to create. So in being fair that the defense is using all this time and trying to create doubt, you might ask, or I would ask, certainly ask, what is the prosecution doing right now? Are they resting on their laurels? Are they resting on the information they have right now? Are they resting and just fine-tuning the evidence they have now? Or are they aggressively going out there and building a better and better case? We, as content creators here on YouTube, we don't have the inside information, and neither does the broadcast media, neither does the print media, have the inside information on what's in that case folder. So I would just speculate that maybe 10% of the evidence that they have in this case has been turned over. So a good 90% of the evidence, I believe, I personally believe from having done this business, investigate homicides, run big cases like this, I believe they have tracked the trailers full of evidence more in this case. So it's sort of when I hear people even in the chat and stuff saying, oh, if that's all they have, he's going to beat this case. Trust me, that's not all they have, all right? I believe they have tons more evidence, and that's what tonight's show is going to be about. How much more evidence do they have? How are they fine-tuning this evidence? How are they fine-tuning their expert witnesses to do a presentation that's expert? Because a lot of the evidence in this case is going to have to be explained by experts, so that jurors, regular John Q. and Susie Q. juror, can understand the evidence. Because it's not every day that we deal with cell phone tower pings and DNA and familial DNA and touch DNA and blood DNA. That's uh, not every day we deal with that. So that needs to be explained. So if the prosecution has these expert witnesses, won't the defense also have experts that can refute what the prosecution says. That's why it's so important 
for the case detectives and the FBI agents and all of the police personnel that who are going to testify to understand the evidence, to understand what it means, and to be prepared when they get up on the stand and they raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. They have to have a good understanding of this case. And the preparation from this case is so important. I can't, I can't even stress it enough because don't forget, and I'm not trying to put down anyone involved in this case, this is the first murder in Moscow in seven years. So how, how experienced is that man you see on the screen? Bill Thompson. He obviously has been around, you can see just by looking at his, uh, his appearance. However, he doesn't have a, a great deal of homicide experience. He may have a great deal of experience as a prosecutor. However, there is no bigger case, no case that takes more expertise on this earth than to prosecute a homicide. To talk about all those things tonight, I have my co-host with me, retired NYPD detective, and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. And I just want to say once again, thank you to all the listeners that came over from Duty Ron Show. We greatly appreciate you guys. Thank you, Duty Ron, for uh, channeling over your uh, listeners to us. I think we have a lot to talk about tonight, Bill. No, absolutely. Because you know something? I, uh, I like you, and probably Duty Ron, and all conscientious content creators, we, we read a, a great deal of the chat and the comments. I actually enjoy it. I can't read it all because I would probably do nothing else but answer uh, chat, you know, but I enjoy reading it. I enjoy interacting with our audience. And I also realize by reading that how wonderful and how informed and how much our audience appreciates us. So I just want to thank them for that while I'm uh, going on about this. You know, Billy, you uh, in your open, you were talking about whether or not the prosecution is going to relax or is going to rest based on the information that they already have. I think it's going to be quite the opposite. There's going to be a race to find out as much information about movements of Brian Kohlberg, obviously before the murders and post the murder time till the time when he was taken into custody, there's going to be a treasure trove of information that's available to uh, investigators to find out what his movements may have been searches that he'd done on his computer. We've gone over all the different things that we think. And again, um, there's going to be both sides. Prosecution is going to be doing their due diligence. They have an obligation to present the best case possible uh, when you're going to charge someone with a capital crime, especially capital crime of four uh, murder one uh, murder first degree charges and the defense is going to be out there trying to come up with some exculpatory evidence that could exonerate Kohlberger in this case. So again, both teams are probably working very uh, hard to uh, conduct as much investigative information as possible. I think that the uh, prosecution, you talked about the prosecutor there, I believe his name was uh, Bill Thompson. Uh, how much, uh, trial experiences he have. Never mind murder uh, cases that there hasn't been a murder in seven years in Idaho, but 
as the district attorney or the prosecutor in that uh, jurisdiction, how many cases has he actually tried? How many times has he gone to trial with a case and seen it through from beginning to end? That's going to be very important. Now, I know he's going to have a second chair. He's going to have possibly an outside uh, assistant from uh, another jurisdiction that would uh, maybe third chair, uh, you know, the prosecution. But uh, again, those are very, very good points that you brought up, Billy. How much experience does he have in the courtroom? Because as you know, the courtroom is a very, very tough battle to wage. Uh, it's not easy to uh, get points across. You know, the judge can overrule you or there could be objections, different things like that. And it's very, very, um, you know, you're in the spotlight, so to speak. It's very difficult to be effective in a courtroom unless you have that experience, you've been through it before. It's like anything else. Practice makes perfect, as they say. Um, but uh, the one thing he is going to have on his side is he's going to have a tremendous investigative team. You had the New York's, I'm sorry, the, the state police. You had the local police in Moscow. And you had the FBI, which is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States with the best crime lab. So he is going to have a ton of help. Uh, I'm sure that they did a, a, a plenty of work and there's probably uh, much more to follow. You know, I just wanted to say, I think that when you Bill Thompson will have the state attorney general's office uh, prosecutors or prosecutor helping him with this case, he's not going to be the only lawyer for the uh, for the state. So he's going to have some help. And well, as he should, this is a huge case. There's four murders involved here. Um, so, yeah, he'll, he'll have help. So let's get let's get right down to it. Last week, we had uh, Michael Vecchioni on, who is a um, former Brooklyn assistant district attorney, the chief of the Homicide Bureau. And we asked him, look, when we do a case like this or when we talk about any case, we try to stay in our lane. And what our lane is, is homicide investigation and cops. We're coppers. All right. Investigative cops. And, you know, just so you don't know, and I'll teach you something here, too. The word cop. You may hear it and think, oh, that's disparaging. That's that's not a nice term. And it actually is fine. Some people may think it's disparaging, but it actually stands for constable on patrol. And it comes from England. It comes from Great Britain. So I'm fine with someone calling me a cop. And I, I even use the term copper myself because I, I, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. So if someone uses the term cop, don't think it's disparaging. Absolutely Other, other terms that have been used um, – uh, Mike um, Geary had used, you know, um, exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory evidence is evidence that tends to clear the defendant. Conversely, inculpatory evidence is evidence that tends to prove the defendant's guilt. So we're learning some new words here too, right? We bring you in Professor Geary on. He starts introducing new words and everything. I learned, I love to learn new stuff. So I just thought that I would introduce that. So tonight you learned cop, exculpatory, and inculpatory. All right. You know, Billy, I had heard exculpatory many times before. The inculpatory, is that how you pronounce it? That's how you yes, say it? Inculpatory. Inculpatory. Yes. And it makes sense. Exculpatory, inculpatory is going to prove uh, guilt. But uh, the thing that I was kind of enlightened, I, I did know it, but I wasn't really so aware of it because I'm always on the prosecution side is that uh, the defense has to turn over. If they come up with an eyewitness, let's say, or they find some specific evidence that they can say that this is going to prove our client 
innocent exculpatory evidence. They have to also turn that over to the prosecution. I I did remember that, but I wasn't that aware of it. So I thought that that was a good point that was brought up on the other night's show. You know, Tom Cusinelli, a retired NYPD captain, had to throw in another term. And while we're on terms, I'll just throw it in there. Quid pro quo basically means I'll make it very simple. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically that, what that reminds me of Hunter Biden for some reason. I don't know why that came to my head. but uh, quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. That's, that's Latin, obviously. And I never took Latin, but I always knew some of these terms. Anyway, let's get down to it. We Classroom is over. One of the things that um, Michael Vecchioni said when we said, Mike, if you were the prosecutor on this case, how would you start this case? And he said in his opening statement, he would go right to DM and he would go right to the eyeball witness, an eyeball witness seeing someone who may have been the killer with bushy eyebrows and wearing a mask walking out and the sliding glass doors on the second floor there. That's where he would start his case. So with that in mind, DM also, she's gotten, there's no doubt she's going to be a witness for the prosecution. And what does that mean? That means the defense is going to grill her also, right? But as a witness for the prosecution, they're going to have to really prepare her. You think she's traumatized by this? You bet she is. But is she going to be a good witness for the prosecution or is she going to be no help at all? Because she potentially is a smoking gun type witness, Phil. Well, first off, I agree with you and I agree with Mike. I do believe that she should be the first uh, person to testify in this case. And I think that the uh, initial stages of her uh, cross-examination, not cross-examination, her examination, her testimony would be, who are you? She would state her name. Where do you live? She would state that she lived, was living at that time at that location. What was your lifestyle like? I was a college student. I lived with the victims in this case, Zanna Kernoodle, um, uh, Ethan Chapin, uh, and, and the other two, uh, uh, Gonzalez and I, I, um, Mad- Madison Mogan. I forgot the names offhand. Forgive me for that. But uh, she would start to give face to the victim. She would tell about the lifestyle of what was going on before this night of this horrible incident. And then again, like you said, Billy, she went through an extremely traumatic experience. Um, I think that now with some counseling, perhaps uh, the fact that the threat is over, that the person that we believe is responsible is in custody and uh, we can now maybe rest a little easy that, you know, she's not going to be harmed or anything like that, but super traumatic experience. She will be able to put the face on the victims. That's one good point that I think, uh, Mike brought up, Mike Vecchione brought up. The other point is, is that she's going to solidify the timeline. We know that there was video evidence of the vehicle last seen in the rear of the location at about 4.04 AM started a little before four. Uh, it was picked up on video surveillance, four different times. The last time was about 404. And she is claiming some way, somehow they can figure out that at 417 AM is when uh, the perpetrator exited through the rear sliding doors, walked past her and exited through the rear sliding doors. That's also going to establish it. It solidifies the timeline. It gives a face to the victims, but it's also going to solidify that bloody shoe print that was found by the 
back sliding glass door. So those three things can be laid out just by DM's testimony right there. And perhaps maybe other stuff that we don't know uh, that was revealed in her interview. Absolutely. One of the things that Ashley Banfield was talking about the other night, we played it the other night, was the um, the statements made on this this horrific murder happened on November 13th. On November 17th, Ashley Banfield interviewed the coroner of Latar County. And she, you know, first of all, I don't know if in fact she was there for the processing of the crime scene, because that probably took 16, 18, 24 hours. I doubt that the coroner was there for the whole time. Um, death investigators, death investigators need to be experienced and they have a certain protocol. The death investigators from the medical examiner's office, they don't do their work till the crime scene detectives have completed theirs. Now that makes a lot of sense, right? The reason they don't do their work simultaneously or during the time that the crime scene detectives are doing their work is because they have to move the bodies. They have to disturb the bodies. So therefore, the crime scene detectives have to complete all their work, taking photographs, uh, taking notes of, of, uh, of the condition of the body, using lasers that note the condition of the body, photograph, uh, collect blood evidence, blood spatter, make note of it, uh, evidence that's on the scene. So all of the work that the crime scene detectives do has to be completed before the medical legal investigators get to do their job. And the medical legal investigators have a protocol to follow. And one of the things they do, of course, is to take the body temperature. And they also note the condition of the body. Is the body, uh, well, the stab wounds would be quite obvious. The blood would be quite obvious. But they would also take note of something called rigor mortis. But based on the fact that the medical legal investigators probably didn't get to touch the bodies till after four hours, they were there for longer than four hours, the bodies were probably out of rigor mortis and into something called liver mortis, which is lividity, which is the blood pools to the dependent side and actually looks like a body has a sunburn on it based on the, the lividity. So all of these things that medical legal death investigators will take note of, they actually may be the, the, the ones also that may take the scrapings from underneath the fingernails or they, they just, the, the crime scene detectives wrap the hands in paper bags to um, secure that potential evidence. And then it's done by the pathologist in the medical examiner's office. You know, Billy, uh, what you're describing is obvious that, uh, you know, I think a lot of time was spent inside that crime scene. It probably went over days. So I doubt that the, uh, you know, the coroner was present for all of that. Um, when you talk about the collection of evidence, uh, that's going to be something that is going to be very, very, uh, you know, uh, pinpointed at the, uh, at the trial, uh, prosecution is going to put forth, uh, the way evidence was collected and defense is going to try and 
you know, impeach uh, how it was collected? Was it done properly? Was there something that was compromised? Uh, could, uh, you know, cross-contamination have taken place with uh, different pieces of evidence? So those are some of the things that I think that are going to be very, very important testimony at the trial. Um, chain of evidence, you know, when a piece of evidence is recovered, I think that's very, very important as well. You know, when we recover a piece of evidence, we safeguard it. We uh, put it in some type of a container, whether it be a plastic or a paper bag or whatever it is. We have evidence bags in the police department. And then we sign it and we deliver it either to the laboratory or we turn it over to the property clerk. Whatever it is, uh, all the uh, different phases of the evidence, there's a thing called the chain of custody. We make sure that that's kept because evidence obviously is got to be kept pristine for the purposes of trial. Uh, so again, there could be some breaks in that chain of custody, the chain of evidence. Uh, that was the things that the prosecution is going to be very solid on to say that, you know, the proper protocols were followed and the evidence was kept at this location. And when it was examined, it was examined by, it went from the location to the lab and the lab officer opened it, documented, cataloged it, examined it, and then it was put back in a safe place, uh, you know, for future examination. All of those things people don't realize are very, very important because if one of those things is not followed properly, again, you could create a doubt. And that's what the job of the prosecution is uh, to prevent uh, any kind of a doubt. We want to uh, convict beyond a reasonable doubt, as you talked about earlier, Billy. So those are the things that the defense team would uh, try to, uh, you know, uh, impeach testimony in a, in a trial. I'm going to play a little bit of this from the other night uh, from Ashley. Bay. Comfortable to hear this because we're talking about innocent kids who were killed in that home um, back in October. And not only that, um, this is evidence that likely will come out in court at some point. Uh, whether it will be germane to who the killer is or not, that remains to be seen. But it could be evidence nonetheless. With that in mind, let me let you know uh, what these sources have told News Nation. Uh, number one, they told us that um, the victims, uh, Kaylee Gonzalez and Madison Mogan, were killed first, and they confirmed that Ethan Chapin and Zana Kernodal were killed on the second floor afterwards. And, and these, these are, are some of the other details. You know, what she's referring to, Ashley Banfield, and we covered this in sort of great depth the other night uh, with uh, Mike Geary, but she's referring to two... Um, sources of information she has that are unidentified, sources close to the investigation, she describes them as, describes them as. I don't trust that at all as to be accurate because who are these people? We don't know. But a broadcaster is taking this as gospel and putting it out there as truth. And people criticize us also. Oh, you put it out there too. We're giving a little addendum here. We don't know if the information that she's receiving is accurate. Should we ignore it? Well, you decide that. We're trying to give you accurate information based on we, what we know about criminal investigation.
You know, Billy, it sounds like that she believes it to be true. That's why she broadcast it. So again, like you said, uh, it's not being uh, reported by law enforcement. It's an unnamed source. So it has to be taken with a grain of salt. However, it could be likely, it does sound likely to me that the, the first two victims were killed up on the third floor and on the way out encounters the second two victims and then makes the exit. That does sound likely to me. So uh, again, we don't know it. 100% for certain she's reporting it and it sounds like she does believe it to be true that they have released they said that Ethan Chapin was killed in the doorway of Zana Kernodal's room before the killer set upon Zana uh, the sources say that it appeared Ethan had stepped partly into the hallway where the attack may have begun um, these sources also say that Ethan Chapin suffered a slash to the neck. But I have to say that both of these details are in direct conflict with what the coroner had originally told us right here on this program exclusively. And also, they conflict directly with what police have said as well. And those two facts that are in conflict are that all of the victims were in their beds, according to police and the coroner, and according to the coroner, all of the injuries were stab wounds and not slash wounds. So I just want to play for you exactly what it was the coroner said in her words. Were any of them uh, slashed? Were, were any of their necks cut? Um, or were these all puncture wounds? Well, it was a pretty large knife, so it's really hard to call them puncture wounds. And they were definitely stabbings. Uh, can you tell me, when you say that they might have been sleeping, were they found in beds? Um, yes. So those uh, were the facts that... You know, I, I said it the other night on the show with, um, with Michael Geary. Uh, I don't think that you can trust the accuracy of, um, of the coroner on the scene. Also, because if you've ever seen a body that's filled with blood that's been cut with a knife, it's very difficult to examine the wounds on the scene. In fact, the pathologists, when they examine the wounds, they will at some point, after the bodies are photographed and everything, they will at some point clean the wounds so that they can see exactly what type of wound it is. So for the coroner, who also, got, folks, again, I'm not putting this lady down. She's an RN. She's a registered nurse. That's great. And she has a law degree. She's also a lawyer. Uh, but is that really the qualifications to make the, the judgment call on the stabbings at the scene of the crime? I don't um, trust this information. I really don't. I agree with you, Billy. And again, like you brought up, uh, when an autopsy is conducted, the body could be obviously much more uh, exactly examined. Uh, they'll be able to tell the depth of the wounds. They'll be able to tell which wounds could be considered superficial, meaning that it didn't hit any uh, major arteries, didn't hit any organs. It may have just gone into skin or muscle and could cause some bleeding. However, would not be uh, a death blow, so to speak. But if you have an incident where uh, 
one of the injuries, one of the knife wounds punctures a lung, punctures a main artery, punctures a uh, main organ, which would uh, cause excessive bleeding and uh, cause a person to lose consciousness within 15 or 20 seconds and perhaps expire in a minute or two. Those are the things that would be explained uh, at autopsy. And when you get that autopsy report, it would talk about all the different wounds. If there's a dozen wounds, it would explain that one through seven are considered superficial. The rest are considered kill wounds and different things of that nature. And we took, before we went on the air, we talked about, uh, there would also be a, uh, a, a drawing, uh, showing exactly on the body where the wounds were. So again, all of those things are done at autopsy. Lou Lemaraco, Bill Thompson, 30 years as Latar County Prosecutor. He will get the job done. Much respect and love to that man. Multiple awards, very stand-up guy with integrity. You know, Lou, I don't um, disparage this man. I don't doubt that he's an excellent prosecutor. But the fact is, he doesn't get a lot of murders. If you get a murder every seven years and he's been there for um, he's been there for 30 years and he gets less than five, he has, he's 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 prosecuted less than five murders in 30 years, if, it, if that's the pace of them. Absolutely. Brilliant. And wasn't what we said, in, in my opinion, I'm sure I could speak for you as well. We didn't mean to disparage him. We're just talking about how difficult it is to get up there and prosecute a quadruple uh, capital murder case. It's not an easy thing to do. I'm sure he's going to be competent at it. I am sure he's going to get a lot of help. We're just pointing out that it's not something that you have every day. I mean, I've only seen in my, in my career, I, I had a triple homicide. Uh, I don't know how many triples you've seen or quadruples, Bill, but uh, I've never seen a quadruple. So again, these are rare occurrences and uh, this is going to have, you know, it's a high profile case, obviously. It's a capital murder case and it's a quadruple homicide. So it has major, major, uh, you know, spotlight on it, so to speak. So it's going to be difficult, but I'm sure with the right help, he's going to do fine. Emilie, 53, that coroner was out of line who gave her the authority to speak on an active. Absolutely. You're 100% correct, Emilie, 53. And Cheryl, same. I can't believe that the coroner gave this interview. And it was four days after the murder that she gave this interview. You guys are 100%. I agree. I would never see the New York City chief medical examiner going and giving an interview ever, really, ever. Post-conviction, post maybe, or post-trial, perhaps. But again, you know, it's so funny that they brought that up. I've been meaning to say that for the past several shows. When did you ever, I was going to ask you, but when did you ever see a medical examiner or a coroner give an interview a few days into a, a, a you know, a, a homicide like this? It was very, very unusual for that to take place. And again, everybody wanted their 15 minutes of fame. I get it. I, I don't think, though, that you could take for gospel what she did say in that interview. Um, we talked about it, Billy, before we went on the air about how some wounds could be considered a slash or a stab, but you really can't uh, define them until the autopsy's done and uh, a medical investigator does a, uh, you know, a complete autopsy. And then you can describe the wounds. Uh, sometimes a person could be fighting and it could look like a slash uh, while the person was trying to stab. So again, uh, a little bit misconstrued there, a little bit confusing, I guess. But uh, again, that was a great point that those two. Uh, yes, absolutely. Thank you guys for the, for the point there. Um, one of the things that, you know, everyone uh, talked about, in fact, early on in the investigation, I don't, I don't know if you remember, 
Some of these broadcast channels were saying, oh, there's only 101 pieces of evidence. Where did they get the authority to talk about how many pieces of evidence there is and that that's a bad thing? Like that really pissed me off when people were saying that. And this was, of course, before the arrest. There's only 101. Like, oh, should they just start ripping things off the wall to satisfy broadcast media that they have more evidence than the 101 pieces that they were unsatisfied with, you know? You, you know, Billy, that was reported taken from the crime scene itself. Now, that was early, early on. I am sure that there's multiple other different pieces of evidence with regard to what was recovered over at his apartment at the Washington State University off-campus apartment, uh, maybe in his vehicle, maybe at his home in Pennsylvania. So again, that doesn't concern me. And it actually sounds like a lot of evidence if you take from a crime scene. I, you say there was four different bodies, uh, probably in two locations. So that's like 50 pieces of evidence from each location if we want to divide it up evenly. Uh, again, that doesn't seem like a little bit of evidence. It doesn't seem like an overwhelming amount, but it's it's a decent amount of evidence, Bill. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like this show from a police perspective, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to share us with your friends and family and make comments, we appreciate all that. And we love uh, reading your comments and answering them back. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And you can see the folks in the green font. We have a YouTube channel memberships, and we really appreciate our fans, our subscribers, our friends, and they're very supportive. And our channel keeps growing, and we're hoping one day to be as big as Duty Run. <laughs> he's helping us He's helping us get there. Uh, you know, folks, I wanted to also talk about, you know, when people get concerned about the evidence, oh, there's... Is that all they have right now? We have never, and we have spoken about this numerous times, the autopsy evidence is not out yet, right? It's never been released, right? So there can be considered to be four separate crime scenes. And what do I mean by that? Four bodies. There's four separate bodies. That's four separate crime scenes. So all of the work that the pathologist done, who, by the way, a pathologist is a medical doctor. That word coroner is not, it's, it's, it, there should be a system in the United States that the, we only use the medical examiner system. The coroner system is not a good system. And Barbara Butcher, who has been on duty, Ron's show a hundred times, she's been on this show. She's a real expert or not. She was the chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. She really talks down the coroner system. It's not a good system. The medical examiner system is the most preferred system uh, because the people you're dealing with are medical doctors who do this all the time, all right? So the medical doctor who performed these autopsies, and that, by the way, is where a lot of the evidence is also collected, evidence underneath the fingernails of the victims, right? Uh, touch DNA on the clothing or on the body. Some of that uh, the removed from the body will be the job of the pathologist, all right? The clothing will be taken by crime scene, and that'll be uh, all the, uh, the evidence from that will be collected by crime scene. So you can see how complicated this can really get. And then any potential evidence that's collected during the autopsy, for example, DNA evidence, has to, of course, 
be processed correctly so the DNA can go to the proper place to be identified. Now, who better than to collect and categorize and send the DNA to a correct location than a pathologist, a medical doctor? Can any attorney tell the doctor, oh, you didn't do that right? You know? Oh, really? <laughs> Jacobian Myers, I think I did do it right, you know? Uh, I just gave a plug to Jacobian Myers. And then uh, anyway, I said that as sort of a, a little a little joke. But Joe Murray's not going to like that. Yeah, yeah, Joe Murray won't like that. <laughs> but so it's very difficult. But yet the defense will hire their own experts to try to create doubt on the work that a pathologist, a professional medical doctor will do in collecting this evidence. And drawing out, we talked about, the uh, anatomical diagrams they do, uh, which will indicate all the stab wounds and the location on the body and whether the stab wounds were in fact fatal or not fatal. And they can tell which ones were fatal. Jolie Up, thank you. Uh, great show. First timer. Thank you, Jolie Up. Welcome. Uh, Cynthia Gaines, thank you for the $5 super chat. AB and Coroner weren't being respectful of the victims, in my opinion. Cynthia Gaines, I think that, you know, I don't think they meant to be disrespectful, but there was no way that coroner should have been interviewed four days after the murders. No way. Jeannie Nash, thank you so much for the $2 super chat. Uh, Vicky O'Quinn, enjoyed being here. It looks like you're uh, a member of our uh, <laughs> of our uh, YouTube family. Anyway, so the... The pathologist is so important. And another thing I just wanted to point out, because many of the people that are working on this, the investigators, the detectives, the FBI, the state police, some are very experienced, some are not. The lead detective on this case happens to not be um, that experienced. That person is going to spend a lot of time learning and being taught by the pathologist. This is what happened. And the pathologist will explain everything to that detective. And that detective should have attended all four of these autopsies. If he didn't, that's a huge mistake by the police department. But he should have been at every single one of these autopsies. Tough for a two- or three-year veteran of a police department to go to four autopsies, autopsies of 20- and 21-year-old kids. Really tough to do. Yeah, but uh, it's what's expected of the uh, assigned investigator. I, I think you're making a good point, Billy, that uh, he should have uh, attended all four of those just to know the, you know, the details of what took place. Uh, very, very important uh, to figure out, you know, uh, the exact crime scene, to read the crime scene. Once you're inside the location, you're going to get a good picture of what took place based on everything that you see. Now, when you go to the autopsy the next day, the post, uh, you're going to be able to confer with the medical uh, examiner and talk about, you know, what was the wounds that caused the person to expire? How long could the person have been conscious based on these wounds? Could it have been that there was a, a tremendous struggle or a fight? Could the person have lived for a, an extended period of time before they expired. All of those questions would be answered at autopsy. And one last thing I wanted to bring up about uh, crime scene experts that the prosecution will be working with. Uh, they're going to want to explain how the evidence is recovered, specifically that sheet. That sheet is going to be very, very important 
to uh, the whole case because obviously that sheath uh, contained DNA evidence on it that matched Brian Koberger's dad. It, it linked to the dad. It wasn't a match to the dad. It was a link to the dad. It was familiar DNA, which eventually I am sure that a, uh, uh, a copy of uh, Brian's DNA was uh, taken, a sample, I'm sorry, a sample of his DNA was taken and compared to that uh, DNA that was recovered from the sheet and I'm certain it's going to wind up being a match. So again, uh, how was that uh, sheath handled? Where was it recovered? You're going to have pictures and you're going to have video that's going to be shown to the jury. And now you're going to have a crime scene expert that can explain, this is where it was found. This is how we handled it. We swabbed the uh, whole sheet and we swabbed the snap specifically for uh, DNA and we were successful. We did recover DNA and that went to uh, you know, the lab and from the lab, it went to the familiar DNA, the searches on the, on the public sites that led to Brian Kohlberger's father and 99.9% chance that it was the father of the DNA that was recovered off of that sheet. Now he's taken into custody and that DNA does match his. That's uh, uh, one of the things I think will have to be explained. And then you have the bloody footprint. We're going to establish uh, how it got there by DM. I talked about that. That would be in the open. Perhaps later on in closing statements, uh, the DA may bring that up and say, we did recover a bloody footprint at the rear door with the foot facing the door as if to be exiting. Now we're going to uh, remind you that DM testified that she saw him walk out that door, the, the perpetrator. She saw a master. Sure, Phil, I, I just want to interrupt you for one second. This sheath that I you see on the screen right now is not the sheath. It's a, a sheath that is similar, that is similar to the one that they recovered. You can see it's for a K-bar US Marine Corps knife. And where the DNA was recovered was on the button, the snap of, of, of the sheath. All right. I just did this so that you could see it and understand it, but it's not the sheath that was recovered. Bill, leave that up there for a second. I just want to make one other comment about it. Now, obviously, most people, it's kind of self-explanatory, but for people that don't understand where that DNA was recovered from, the knife would slip into that sheet, and then the top part where the black thing is would snap over one side, and then the top would be the snap that would close it and hold it in place. So that snap is where they... Uh, it's almost like a button. That snap is where they recovered the DNA that matched Brian Koberger's dad. Uh, very, very important to the case. Again, that's uh, not the sheath, but that's a similar one. And a K-bar knife is obviously a uh, very vicious weapon. It's used by the Marine Corps. Um, some hunters will use those type of knives. So again, uh, very, very deadly weapon. I want to play a little bit of this. We'll move us from here. Those four students were so brutally murdered is and will remain a crime scene for some time as investigators continue to build their case against accused killer 28-year-old Brian Koberger. Over the last couple of days, those investigators have been removing more items from this house. Those items included mattresses. And you'll remember, of course, that at least some of those students were killed as they slept in their beds. Forensics experts talking to Fox say that investigators will likely gain a whole lot more DNA evidence from this scene. Listen here. And it's not just blood. 
we're talking about any kind of touch DNA, like dead uh, skin cells that are that are sloughing off. Uh, you also have hair transfer, fiber transfer. All of these things are going through. And here's here's key: if he has blood on him, he's going to contact the surfaces that he's walking on and touching. Powerful evidence. Brian Koberger, meantime, remains in the county jail just a couple of miles from the house. He made his first court appearance, of course, last Thursday. He will make another appearance this coming Thursday. That, though, is just a status hearing. We are unlikely to learn much more about the case against him. In the meantime, University of Idaho students will be returning to Moscow for... Well, obviously, that was uh, early on in the investigation when this was made. But one of the one of the reasons I wanted to play that was you saw the investigators carrying those mattresses out of of the house, right? That is also evidence that the district, excuse me, the defense attorney will use to show. Oh, is this the proper way to process a a bed? Throwing it in the back of a pickup truck is. Did you clean that pickup truck? Was the bed of the pickup, you know, so they will come with all ways that that evidence could have been contaminated. How do we know there wasn't DNA in the bed of that pickup truck? You know, so you, you know what, Billy? I think that perhaps they collected whatever uh, DNA evidence they thought maybe they cut out the blood stains that were on it. But now they want to bring that mattress into court and use it as a prop, so to speak, to show where this piece of evidence came from. I think it's going to be powerful to do that. Again, though, you like you said, uh, a good defense attorney is going to bring up uh, all types of, uh, you know, inconsistencies. Was that uh, was that a bed of that uh, of that pickup truck? Was it uh, cleaned out beforehand? And could it have been uh, cross-contaminated? They'll go through all of that stuff. Absolutely. J.D. Driscoll, thank you for the $10 super chat. Thank you. Coda's question, does your DNA go into the system when someone is arrested or not until convicted? When they're arrested. I mean, in this case, to cover themselves, they would get a search warrant to collect his DNA so that it's all 100% legit and that, uh, you know, th th there's not going to be any the defense uh, trying to get it disqualified later on. They would actually get a, a judge's order to take his DNA from him. I, I believe in New York State, Billy, um, uh, if you're convicted of uh, uh, specific crimes, I think most felonies and some misdemeanors, when you are shipped off to corrections, when you're going to do your jail time, that's when you'd have to turn over a uh, DNA sample. Again, though, there are some cases when you're arrested, if it's a sexual crime, they may get a, a, a search warrant to do it uh, sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of times in investigations, we would uh, try to get a defendant to give us his DNA voluntarily. And we would actually have a form that he would sign and agree to it. And that passed muster in court, believe it or not. And it was perfectly legitimate. I know a lot of folks, they hear that. Oh, how is that voluntary? You asked him for his DNA. And the other way we can get DNA is Class, do you remember the word? Surreptitiously. <laughs> Surreptitiously, we can get uh, DNA from someone by following them. They drink out of a cup. We take the cup. They drink out of a water bottle. They discard something they were eating. There's a way to surreptitiously collect DNA. I, I remember there was a case where they took chewing gum. A guy spit out a piece of chewing gum. They took the chewing gum. They were able to recover DNA from the chewing gum. Completely held up in court. Uh, he discarded it. It became garbage at that point. And uh, there was no uh, you know, right to privacy on the uh, discarded piece of gum. 
Absolutely. You know, folks, we were talking about, so all of the uh, the work that the medical examiner has done on this case regarding the autopsies and collecting the evidence, none of that is out yet. None of that, may, it, potentially, it, could it have been handed over to the defense already? Yeah, it's a possibility. It could have been handed, but we don't know about it. The gag order from this judge in this case, if it was handed over, uh, handed over we don't know about it. But that, I believe, is going to be, you know, we talk smoking gun. If his blood evidence, his blood DNA is in this crime scene, it's all over. It's over. I don't care if you get 20 attorneys. How they get, how are they going to explain that? Absolutely, Billy. I mean, you know, uh, we don't know that it was blood DNA or touch DNA just on the sheet alone. Now, you and I talked about beforehand, before we went on the air, that uh, that probable cause warrant that was issued, uh, you know, to the Pennsylvania judge to arrest Brian and bring him back to Idaho. Uh, probably only, you know, a small percentage of what evidence there was recovered against him. Uh, we thought, you know, we just threw a number out there, maybe 10%. Uh, it seemed like a lot of stuff was in that probable cause warrant, that affidavit. So that tells me that there's probably a ton more of evidence and, uh, you know, it's almost a, a 100% uh, chance that his blood is going to be mixed in there someplace in that house, or perhaps, uh, you know, a droplet of sweat, uh, skin cell, DNA, all of those things that we've talked about in the past. I'd like to read this. Mab investigates. Mab, thank you for the 99 cent super chat. What did the kids do for three to four hours before the cops were called? The defense will tear this up. How can the crime scene be pristine with all those kids cleaning up whatever was in the house? Uh, drugs. Well, we we don't know that. Um, well, I think the defense will have to be very, very gentle with DM or the jury will not like that at all. Uh, DM is a eyeball witness. She's traumatized. Yeah, we all que can question what happened. Why did she not call or why did someone not call 911 until, you know, how many hours later? I mean, yeah, that seems, I don't know how that's explainable. Uh, the prosecution is going to have to explain that away some way. You're right, uh, Mab Investigates. That's a trump card potentially for the defense. You know, Billy, I'm going to go out on a limb and try and explain a little bit what I think possibly could be. Um, she hears a noise. Uh, she's half asleep. We don't know if she had been drinking or not. Uh, maybe she thought it was some type of a prank. She retreats back to her room. She falls asleep. And then once uh, they wake up in the morning, 11, whatever it is, before they call 911, uh, you know, knocking on the doors, trying to find perhaps seeing uh, one of the victims bloody, starts to put it together at that point. I don't think there's going to be a uh, very uh, horrible reason why she didn't call uh, I don't think she was involved in it. I think that's clear. The police have said that she was uh, the other two roommates that were home were not involved in the uh, in the murder, or that's what they believe. So again, I don't think there's going to be some nefarious reason why she didn't call the police or alert anyone. It does sound suspicious, 100%. It sounded suspicious from the minute I heard it, but perhaps there is a logical reason why. Uh, and the only one, and I've said this before, that can really explain that is DM. And I am sure that she will give uh, an explanation when she's called to testify at the trial.
Schmitty, I hope they wouldn't do a voice lineup. DM is probably in a constant state of doubting herself, not reliable. I, uh, Schmitty, I agree with you. And we spoke the other night on why. Uh, it, it's I, I compared it to why police departments don't do um, gunshot residue tests on people because it's an absolute, right? What if the person who shot somebody cleaned their hands real quick before the police got there? Is there going to be gunshot residue on the hands? No. And don't think perpetrators don't know this stuff, right? So if the police test for gunshot residue and it's, it's not present, does that mean this person did not is not the shooter? Conversely, with a voice lineup, if she can't pick out the voice, does that mean the person that did it, that actually said that, potentially Brian Koberger, does that mean he's not guilty? So it's it's a big risk to take, and the police won't take that risk and by doing a, uh, a voice lineup. Well, uh, as we've established uh, earlier on in other shows, and we talked about it earlier today, Bill, we don't know who uttered those words. Do we believe it was Brian P Koberg? I think, based on just, you know, common sense to me, that yes, it excuse me, it does seem like it was Brian Kohlberger that uttered those words. But again, uh, it may have been whispered. It may not have been very loud, hard for her to hear, state of panic. Thinking about it now, uh, completely traumatized, it would probably be very difficult to uh, do a voice analysis. And again, um, not very reliable at this point, I would say. Uh, Lula Morocco, as Michael Vecchioni said, if DM takes the stand the first day, the jury will be more empathetic, very powerful. Lula, absolutely. And I think, you know, you can take that from a former prosecutor who said that that she's the first person he's putting on the stand. You know, it's probably a good idea, too, because she was so, so traumatized and is so traumatized by this. Let's get it over with. Let's get her on the stand right away. And let's get this over with. Let's get her testimony out there. Let's make sure she's prepared to testify also. You know, don't forget, Billy, uh, I would. I am sure that uh, the prosecutor would probably categorize her uh, of as a survivor of a quadruple homicide. She was in the home present as well as the other person. That person may all be called, also be called a testimony. Even, even though that person didn't see anything, that person was present in the house. That per present wasn't injured, wasn't hurt. Uh, they may be asked about what was going on in the house prior to uh, what type of lifestyle. Again, putting a face to the victims in this case. And I think that that's going to be very, very important. And, um, you know, th the fact that you have these two surviving uh, victims, uh, you know, that's going to be something that the prosecution is going to label and that's going to stick in the jury's mind. This is a survivor. This is a person that could have very easily been killed like the other four. So I think that that also puts them in the category of a victim and it's going to show sympathy towards that person. That's just human nature, Bill. Absolutely. Joseph Connor, you know something? Very good point. She would have recognized if it was Ethan's voice, in my opinion. I agree with you, Joseph. That's what we've been saying. I 100% agree with you. I wish you were on the other night when Michael Geary said he thinks it, it wasn't uh, Brian Koberg because it was Ethan Chapin's voice. You're 100% right. I agree with you. That's you, uh, you know what? Listen, it's how everybody sees it in their mind. Uh, when I heard, I, I listened to the show after you guys did the show the other night, and I disagreed with that. I was by myself when I was listening, but I definitely disagreed with that. I believe it was Kohlberger, perhaps as one of the victims who was struggling to stay alive, 
you know, he uttered those words uh, very cynically. Uh, I don't think it would have been Ethan as well, because again, she probably would have recognized that voice. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories. And he is a very qualified criminal defense attorney. And there's a little picture of Joe. What do you want from me? That's what he's saying right there. All right. <laughs> I wonder, man, if, he's, I wonder if he's watching. I don't know if he'd appreciate that, but that's uh, sort of funny. Nah, he's um, got a good sense of humor. He's okay, Joe. He's he he sure man. does. Yeah, he's um, good people. So, folks, you know, one of the things I I had meant to to mention before was that in this with this sheath here, one of the things part of the investigation should be potentially where did he buy this sheath? Where did he buy this K-bar knife? That's why you have to do a financial background check on the perpetrator, on Brian Koberger. Could he have used his credit card? Could he have used his debit card? Could he have went into a store? Could he have ordered this online at an Amazon? So if they can come up with a receipt for this and show that he bought this exact knife in this sheath, bingo. Very powerful piece of evidence. 100% Billy. I think that that's being done. And if it's not, it should be again. Uh, you know, uh, they put it out early on that it was a K-bar knife. Perhaps he could have bought it in a flea market at a yard sale. Again, maybe someone is seeing this and it sparks their attention and they could remember, uh, perhaps they had a video on their house and they can put Brian Kohlberger at the scene. If it's a yard sale or something like that, there's so many possibilities, but that definitely has to be looked into. Um, I would just hope and pray that it was an Amazon order or something of that nature, or perhaps uh, there, we noted in uh, the area of Moscow, there were three different hunting stores that sold hunting, hunting and uh, fishing supplies, stuff like that. So again, the, one of those outdoor stores, perhaps there is a receipt, even if he paid cash, we can get a video of him inside the store. All of those things I believe were being done. There was early on uh, talk about how the police went interviewed those three stores. So perhaps there is a video that exists of him purchasing a knife or something that effect that also would be slam dunk evidence. If you couple that with the knife, with his DNA being found at the scene, I think it's an open and shut case right there. Koberger's public defender filed a request for discovery in court. According to the American Bar Association, this is the formal process of exchanging information between the prosecution and the defense about witnesses and evidence they'll represent at trial. In that request, they asked for 18 things, including a list of potential witnesses, police reports, and evidence. State law requires the prosecution to respond. On January 23rd, the Latah County Prosecutor's Office confirmed it fulfilled that request. New court documents show the state sent the defense police reports and documents, including 995 pages, one audio video file, and a number of photos. Former Idaho Attorney General Dave Leroy told KTVB this exchange of evidence is fairly standard. He says what makes this response unique is the large amount of evidence to sort through, considering the pretrial process only recently begun. 
discovery requests ensure both sides have access to the same evidence. Evidence attorneys will use to craft their arguments either for or against Koberger. The discovery process is ongoing. Latah County's prosecuting attorney confirmed they'll give the defense any new information discovered in the upcoming months. As for what's next, Leroy expects the state to request a discovery back from the defense. He says the state will most likely ask for similar material and information the defense may use in the courtroom. Koberger waved. So the defense, uh, this is the most recent, they said they have nothing to offer the state, which I would imagine is pretty standard. I don't think most defense attorneys are going to say, oh, yes, we have all of this uh, inculpatory evidence, you know, against our client. There's no way they're going to hand that stuff over. But Mike Geary explained it a little differently the other night since he is. You know what? The the uh, position that the defense usually takes is and they don't have to prove innocence. They just have to doubt the evidence that's put forward beyond a reason. They want to come you know, to a doubt. They don't want anything that's going to be seen or construed as beyond a reasonable doubt. So they're going to see what is put forth by the prosecution and try to impeach testimony, try to knock down credibility of evidence. I think that's the tack that they're going to take at this point, only because it seems like there is a mountain of evidence. I don't think they're going to find any smoking gun inculpatory evidence at this point. I doubt that very highly. However, if they did come up with something, uh, they do have the obligation to turn it over to the prosecution so that way prosecution has a chance to uh, evaluate and figure out how they're going to challenge whatever it is they're going to bring into court and say that this is an exculpatory piece of evidence, whether it be a video of him in another location or something of that nature, which I doubt even exists. You know, some of the uh, what we the whole focus of this tonight was supposed to we're talking about what the prosecution is doing now to firm up their case, to tighten up their case. And some of the things they have to revisit is to revisit the victimologies of each and every one of these victims to talk to their friends, families. Is there anything that they forgot to ask? Is there anything that the victims, families, and friends know that will help the prosecution in this case. So the detectives have to continuously be out there pounding the pavement, crossing their T's, dotting their I's, and making sure that they close every little loophole that the defense could go into to try and create doubt. One of the, the, the we think, the strongest pieces and of evidence in this case, besides if there is blood DNA, and we don't know that yet, but the phone work is so, so, you know, and you see people make light of that. Oh, what does it mean that uh, he was reconning the house 12 times? What does it mean? I think it's pretty damn strong evidence, right? What does it mean? It that goes It goes to motive. It goes right to motive. Right. It, it goes, goes right to motive. to motive, although you don't have to prove motive. The, defend, the, uh, the jury loves to hear that. 12 times he's there, you know, the night... Oh, the, excuse me, the early morning of these murders, how convenient that he turned his cell phone off at 2.30 en route to the location. How convenient that he turned it back on after the murders were completed. How about coming back to the scene at 9 o'clock in the morning? Now the phone's on. Now he's back to the scene. Is that damaging evidence? I think so. I think so. You know how many murderers like to go back to the scene of their crime 
and get a thrill out of it, you know, and he went back to the scene. So all of this phone work has to be explained, not by the case detective, by a phone expert, right? by an expert from whoever the carrier is, whoever is the expert that the prosecution hires, that is the cell phone, that is the cell site expert, whoever is maybe the FBI has an expert in geofencing, which we were probably the first and only podcast to mention geofencing during this whole investigation. And geofencing is an electronic technology that can pull up every single electronic device being used in a certain area at a specific time. That's unbelievable evidence. But we need an expert to explain that. I couldn't explain it. No way. Phil couldn't explain it. So they need an expert. And then guess what? The defense is going to hire an expert witness to refute what the prosecution's expert just said. You know, Billy, I sat in on a trial uh, back in 2018 or 2019 uh, where there was a lot of cell phone evidence. It was a murder trial. There was a lot of cell phone evidence put forward. Now, what happens is the carrier comes in with their expert and says, I'm the technician that recovered this cell phone information. They kind of lay out what it is that they turned over. In this case, it was the FBI. They turned it over to the FBI. Then the FBI will bring in their expert and they will say, based on the information, and I'll use Verizon as an example. I don't know if it's Verizon, but I'm just going to use that as an example. Verizon turned over this information to us. This information shows, and it, it gives specific technology markers that show the phone was at this location pinging to this cell site. A phone call was made, which gave an exact location here at this location. And then we're going to take that information that that expert's going to testify to, and we're going to tie it in with video uh, at the same time, because we're going to have specific times. It goes to uh, 0407 and 42nd hours, and you're going to have a video that's going to coincide with that exact timing. So again, all of that needs to be explained. It's not just, you know, the, the prosecution doesn't say, okay, we picked up his cell phone at this location at this time. No, it's not that simple. It has to be show how did they, how did the law enforcement recover the evidence they're going to put forward? We got it from the cell phone carrier. They bring the cell phone carrier in. They have the expert that works for the cell phone carrier that recovered the information from their computers, now turned it over to law enforcement. Then we have the second part of it. Law enforcement now has to state what they gave to me. This is what it means. This is what it deciphers. Here's the map. Here's the location of the cell towers. Here's the location when the call was being made. Here's... Uh, you know, they, they may go back months into the cell phone uh, technology, uh, cell phone, um, the cell phone data of Koberger to see, did he ever turn his cell phone off in the six months prior or a year prior, whatever it is? And the answer may be no. And then we're going to say, oh, but at 2.47 a.m. on the day of the murder, the cell phone was turned off and it wasn't turned back on until 4.53 a.m. or whatever the exact timing was. So Absolutely. those are the things that have to be explained. Pauline Buckles, Koberger has no money, though, so who's going to pay for the experts? You are. <laughs> exactly. You and me. The taxpayer will pay for them. He get, Legal aid has, you know, they'll spend the money, believe me. They'll, they, they'll they have an obligation because if they don't provide uh, the defense that, uh, you know, everything needs to be covered, then they can get a, a, an overturned conviction later on down the line because uh, Kobar can go to court and say, well, my defense team 
didn't, uh, you know, look at this evidence that was recovered uh, from the phone company that I wanted, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, contradict it. And, you know, it wasn't done because I didn't have the money. Again, my, maybe grounds for well, the that's the, so, the the argument is that people always say, oh, the government has unlimited funds. They can just uh, and in the case usually of the federal government, that that's true. They can exhaust yes. defendants and just break people and, you know, make people totally broke to try to prove, uh, to fight the government. But I don't a, think- A judge in a capital murder case is, I'm sure that they would make an application to the judge and say, you're, you know, if there was a, they needed more, uh, you know, investigators to look at this stuff, the judge will make the call and say, listen, you know, we have to do this. They have to get somebody that works with legal aid to uh, investigate this stuff, whether it be an interview of some person or an interview of uh, an expert on cell phone technology, whatever it is, it'll get done. You know, one of the things I wanted to just briefly talk about, and I thought about it uh, in depth, and we've all watched uh, all the talking heads and all the content creators on YouTube, and we've seen a lot of these behavioral analysts, mostly uh, from the FBI. And I was thinking about, would that come into play in the trial? And my thoughts are no. I don't think the prosecution will want that because guess why? And you may, some of you may not like what I'm going to say because it's junk science. It really is junk science. And I've seen some really impressive behavioral analysts. I've seen some PhDs that were very impressive. But guess what? Their science is unproven. So it's I don't think in a court of law it would really help the prosecution at all. So that, I think, will be uh, is not going to be a factor. What I think I was going to, I'm trying to get a lot more in this. We're already into an hour and eight minutes. Brian's movements before, months before, years before even of, of, of these horrific murders, what was his routine? What was, what did he do? We know that he was a, a doctoral student at the Washington State University. Uh, what were his interactions? Where did he go out at night? What was that? All of that stuff is really important. Building a what we call in the canonisms is perpology. We want to know about him. And I'm not going to call it behavioral analysis because I don't think that will specifically help in this case. But looking into his background, looking into his habits, the car. How about the car, the white Hyundai? That is like tre a tremendous piece of evidence. People lose fact, you know, they, they lose sight of that, that, you know, that was a car that was registered and Washington State all of a sudden he changes the plates to Pennsylvania. You know, I think that could be viewed as what Mike Geary says is consciousness of guilt. <laughs> Absolutely. And listen, we talked about the experts that will have to testify as to how did they figure out from a quick video that that was a Hyundai Elantra 2011 to 13. It turned out to be a 14, I believe. So again, uh, that uh, technology that exists where they enhanced the video footage and they were able to say with pretty conclusive uh, you know, to a, de a conclusive degree that it was a Hyundai Elantra. They were off by one year, but they were pretty uh, right on it. Again, they weren't able to get the plate number, but they were able to figure out what car it was that was speeding by or picked up on a video. And again, you know, video technology today is rather good. There's high definition video and stuff, but a moving object is not that easy to figure out what it is. They were able to do that. So that expert would be brought on. Um, you know, there's, there's so many other different things um, with regard to, 
uh, what the prosecution is going to be putting forward. Uh, even the DNA technology is going to have to be explained. Uh, we went through all of that. But, you know, uh, Phil, with the car, they had the video of him pulling up slowly around the house and parking behind the house. That was right. a slow pan of the car. So I think that's the video that initially identified the car. And then the video of the car going past that gas station. I think right. that solidified the identification. All right. So listen, I just, I think it's time, uh, Phil, you, I think you should, you do it every night. I think it's uh, a great thing is to mention the names of. Uh, I, I really want to do that because I didn't get their names earlier. Uh, the, the victims in this case, Madison Mogan, 21, Kaylee Gonzalez, 21, uh, Zana Canodal, 20, and Ethan Chapin, 20. Let their souls rest in peace. And the families, forgive me, I didn't get their names before. I was a little tripped up on it, but I got it now. And, uh, you know, God bless their souls and, and just keep their families and your thoughts and prayers. Those people have been through some tremendous, tremendous traumatic experience. Uh, nothing is ever going to give them closure. They're just going to hope for justice in this case. And I believe we are going to get it. Absolutely. Folks, I just want to thank everyone for coming by, especially all you folks that were watching Duty Ron's channel and came over uh, to check us out. I really appreciate you guys. Again, if you like true crime, real crime from a police perspective, uh, you're in the right place. Uh, we try to give it to you the way it happens, you know. And uh, do we make mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we make mistakes and we're not infallible. But when we make mistakes, we'll... Um, We'll admit to it. We'll, we'll admit that we uh, we erred on something, you know. We tried One last thing I wanted to mention, I don't mean to cut you off, but when we were talking about his background, what was he doing on his social media? Who was he talking to? What was he chatting about? There might be a treasure trove of evidence that might be pertinent to this investigation just in his social media. 100%. So, folks, uh, again, you know, uh, we appreciate you guys coming by and uh, – you know, there's a million angles we could look at this case, but sometimes when I do read the uh, the chat and people think that, oh, there's not that much evidence against him, he's going to beat this case. Uh, you know, look, everyone can have their opinion, but I think that there's a lot more evidence to come and there's a lot more <laughs> that we're going to hear about from, uh, from the prosecution. Folks, have a great night. God bless. And we'll see you. We'll see you soon. Stay safe, everyone. Oh.